The Weekend. Variety. Wireless. It's Radio Live, the Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike Puru, filling in for the incredible Graham Hill. It is such an honour, such a fascinating show. In all honesty, I'd heard a couple of these shows, but I hadn't heard them in their entirety. And when I sat back and I listened, I thought, wow, there is a lot of information, a lot of fun, and it's variety. So coming up this hour, Movies with James Crute. We talk Ocean's 8 and also one of the scariest movies, they say, of all time, a new movie called Hereditary. I haven't seen it myself. I did get an invite, but I didn't make it. Uh, but we're going to concentrate on that a little later on. Also coming up, Max Cryer and words. Where did the word summit come from? That's been in the news recently, hasn't it? Where did the word summit come from? As well as your questions to him. Uh, Bogan. We'll learn where the word bogan came from as well. That is on our list to cover tonight. So looking forward to that. It's Radio Live. It is Saturday night. It's the weekend variety wireless. We talk movies next. This is the weekend variety wireless on Radio Live. At the movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Mike. How are you? Oh, I feel like I'm talking to the Leonard Moulton of New Zealand. <laughs> was that was that his name? It was on Entertainment Tonight oh. for so many years. He's still going, Mike. No, he is. He just and he still produces that kind of uh, almanac with no photos or whatever, you know, with, with the potted <laughs> reviews for each year. I haven't seen one for years, but I believe there's still a, like a well, you know, softback kind of thing that still oh. comes out every year. Incredible. <laughs> that it's incredible, isn't it? Okay, so no, first of all, because I know you probably covered this with Graham earlier, but how what 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 was the first movie you watched? Can you uh, remember? When I was a little kid. Yeah. First movie I remember going to see was Fantasia. Oh my god. When it came back, you know, in those days, which was the seventies, mm. um, they used to have uh, you know, the Disney movies were on sort of high rotation every sort of decade. And I distinctly remember that because there's a sequence, I think it's Fire on Bald Mountain or something. Yes. Which is one of the scariest out there. Actually, I think I have to blame my parents for basically freaking me out because they took me to that. I went to a watership down when I was about six. Oh, yeah, I love that movie too. We must be about the same age, I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah. And then they took me to the Scarecrow when I was about eight, which oh, they... was like a New Zealand horror film. I was going to say, they didn't, did they? Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the scarecrow. For, but anyway. Oh no! And then, so you just—you've just had a fascination with movies over all this time. Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, the person who actually really got me into it was a guy called Gary Gutschlag, who is still a projectionist today. But he was wow. working as a projectionist at Hoyts, and I worked at Hoyts. Uh, incidentally, when the first Jurassic Park movie came out 25 years ago was mm. when that opened. And uh, so wow. he, there, were n there was nobody reviewing films in Dunedin at that stage. And, and he said, hey, you know, why don't we try and do something? Let's go and talk to the local community newspaper. And um, I know you can write. I don't give a monkeys whether you like something or not. Um, but, but let's just uh, see if they're interested. And it's kind of gone from there. I know. And so many layers to movies, isn't there? I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bore you before I ask you quickly about Jurassic Park, the new one that's coming out. I'm going to 
to bore you um, with my history in the movies. Because uh, I, I grew up in Gore. Yep. And uh, the picture theatre was getting sold. So the Operatic Society, which I belonged to as a young teenager, bought the theatre. And we had to go and we had to run it. You know, we'd sell the ice creams and take the tickets. And um, I think we had a projectionist who was paid. He was the only paid member of the theatre. Uh, but that basically funded the theatre so we could use it for stage shows when we wanted. Wow. There's still a few of those around the place, I believe. And in fact, the facility in Gore, I hear, is really amazing now, the St James. Yes, it is, the St James. I helped build a chair in there as well. <laughs> if you look under one of them, you'll see my name. I love it. But I know we're going to talk about Ocean's 8 yeah. um, in just a minute. But Jurassic Park, is there another one coming out soon? Yeah, it's coming out uh, this time next week. Well, next Wednesday, Thursday. Um, so oh, it, I God. believe it might even be out in the... No, it's out in the UK, but not the States. It's all very... There's a bit of controversy around this one, of course, because it's all about a Hawaiian volcano blowing up. Oh, bad all, timing. Well, all about a volcano blowing up. I guess it's actually Costa Rica. But, yeah, it's of course, it was shot on Hawaii. So there's, yeah... There is a bit of bad timing going on, but it doesn't seem to have uh, affected okay. uh, any thoughts about it so far. But, yeah, it's, the, what, the fifth Jurassic movie now? Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. From what I've heard, it's a bit kind of, if you liked the last few, then you'll like this, but it's nothing startlingly new. And there is a suggestion that the new big bad dinosaur looks remarkably like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Ocean's 8. I... I've got co-workers that absolutely love this movie, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, sure. So, as the title suggests, it is a uh, follow-up, I guess you could describe yep. it as, to the Three Oceans movies, which, of course, were a remake of 1950s Rat Pack movies, so Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin and all that. Right. Uh, this, so, George Clooney, Matt Damon and all those guys, what, over a decade ago, had this series of three heist movies, essentially. Yeah. This... A bit like the Ghostbusters a couple of years ago is an all-female spin. So the eight of the title is eight different um, female actresses who come together for a heist. Sandra Bullock is the lead. She plays Debbie Ocean, who is the sister of George Clooney's Danny Ocean, who, according to this movie, has died. Um, oh. And, um, okay, so they kept it in the family, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But as I say, according to this film, no one's quite sure. That's one of the <laughs> teasers of the entire movie is, is he really dead or isn't he? But anyway, I'm not giving anything away by that. Um, and so she puts together this crew in order to carry out a, a heist at the Met Gala, which, of course, is the what, the biggest ball of the year, really, mm -hmm. isn't it? At the Metropolitan Museum of Art, etc., uh, to celebrate their big exhibition of the year. Everybody who's anybody turns out up for it wearing the biggest bling. And so their idea is to steal this diamond necklace from around the neck of this uh, movie star who's played by Anne Hathaway. Um, look, it is an amazing cast. In fact, in a lot of ways, if you if pound for pound, it's probably a bigger cast than the the uh, boys' Oceans movies because you've got Kate Blanchett as yes. well as Bullock and yep. Hathaway, Helena Bonham Carter, uh, Rihanna, um, uh, a um, Asian-American actress by the name of Aquafina, I think is her name, who's uh, b becoming big on the scene, and, and Mindy Kaling as well. So it's just... Right. You know, it's, it's really got that kind of thing. I think the thing that let it down a wee bit for me is the villain 
uh, who's just a bloke, just didn't really... He wasn't really that exciting. And it, and it, as a heist movie, I don't know, it just felt... Well, you want, you want a good, you want a good yeah, film, don't you? that's right. And it just felt a wee bit predictable. And I guess the problem is, when you have something as recognisable as the Met Gala as well, it becomes more about what celebrities they can kind of shoehorn mm. into the story. So you've got Heidi Klum there, you've got I Maria can. Sharapova... So it, so and of course you've got Anna Wintour who runs the whole thing. So um, that's right, that crazy lady. No, well, okay, well you're selling this to me. It sounds quite intriguing. In it all is honesty, kind of you've got and the cast there. You've got the format. I like that. You I know. think if you don't go in really expecting it to be, um, you know, an amazing kind of high movie. I, I, I mean, you know, one of the downsides of being a film reviewer is sometimes you've seen too many films and sometimes you do get a bit jaded. But there was a film that the original or the the last trilogy's director, a guy called Steven Soderbergh, made last year called Logan Lucky, which was a brilliant heist movie. It was hilarious. It was funny. It had a great setup. Had a terrific cast with Channing Tatum, Daniel Craig, and a whole lot of others. And and lots of people joked as it as the Ocean Seven Eleven because it was kind of a hillbilly <laughs> version almost. And that was fun. And it was unexpected and stuff. And and in comparison to this, this felt a bit bit too formulaic. You know? Okay, it right. It just felt like you could predict where everything was going. Having said that, it is nice to see Sandra Bullock back on screen. I think it's been about three years since she was on. Yeah, does she do a good job? Yeah, I think I think she holds it all together. But I felt that unlike maybe the Oceans movies, only two or three characters sort of really are memorable. So it's like it was kind of a bit underwritten for some of the other characters. So Kate Blanchett's character, I never really understood what she was there for or what her particular set of skills were. Or right. It just, it just kind of felt I wanted a bit more from her. Okay, no, well, look, I, I, I'm going to give this a go then, I yeah, think, based yep, on what I you've told me. Yep, but it, I think it's also one that you could equally wait and stay at home and, you know, catch it on demand or whatever when it comes out there. Oh, I don't that, that, missing anything okay. not seeing it on the big screen, unlike the other movie that we can talk about. <laughs> yes, let's talk about this. Hereditary. Tell me more. Yes, so it's prob- it's it's the big horror movie of the year, I think. Um, it's oh, the one that nobody go- really knows a lot about. It's got Tony Collette in it uh, and Gabriel Byrne. It's all about this family who tragedy seems to strike. So um, Tony Collette's character is a woman who specialises in creating miniatures of everything. And yes. She, and she sort of comes up with, you know, these amazing uh, scenes of uh, sometimes dire things that have happened, but, you know, just brilliantly and meticulously created in miniature. But her mother's just died. Um, she's had a number of other things that haven't quite gone right for her, and so she's a bit on edge. And her daughter started acting strangely. And then there's another incident, which I won't go into, okay, which good. will completely freak you out. I must admit, my jaw dropped. And that <laughs> doesn't happen very often in a horror movie these well, days. Well, they are calling it the scariest movie of the year. So it is, it's a funny one, though, because I think it doesn't go in for the same kind of scares that horror audiences are probably used to now. It's not like that kind of paranormal activity right. or, you know, it doesn't deal in found footage. It's, I guess it's more like The Conjuring, which came out a yep. couple of years ago, but, but set in a contemporary thing. It also is very like, I guess, Rosemary's Baby. So a lot of it right. is more kind of all about the characters and and obviously the acting is stronger than a lot of other horror movies at the moment. But uh, one of the interesting things in the States is, while all the critics have been raving about it, apparently audiences haven't really liked it. 
No, because it has had a lot of hype, hasn't it? It has. But unlike, say, Get Out, where audiences really went for it this time last year, this movie, it still made a d- decent money at the box office, but audiences coming out, they have this thing called Cinema Score in the States, which mm. ends up being a, like a school grade for it. It's had something like a D plus, and everybody was kind of flummoxed as to why. And I think, having watched it the other night, I think part of it is it doesn't follow those kind of traditional right. skiers, and a lot of it is more kind of psychological than, you know putting a fixed camera there for two minutes and something's going to go boo eventually. Um, Things go in unexpected directions. Things happen in strange, surreal ways. As I say, I don't want to give too much away because, you know, the delights are kind of in the the weird directions that are going. But there are certainly a couple of moments that are... Yeah, amongst probably the most disturbing I've seen in a couple of years, that's for sure. Oh, no, well, I don't mind that. I like a thinking movie rather than a heart-beating movie, and that's good. And the music, I guess, must... The music must play a big part in this as well, because people I've heard... Is it... What's the name? Colin Stetson, I think, um, did the music, uh, and apparently it's just amazing. Yeah, well, uh, of course, the other horror movie a lot of people talked about this year is uh, A Quiet Place, which was, you know, notable for not having any sound whatsoever in vast moments. This has a kind of series of noises mixed to a, yeah, a very eerie and atmospheric soundtrack. So those two things combined, yeah, really do kind of ramp up the tension. But I think the thing is that the music isn't a cue. You know, with a lot of horror movies where as soon as the music changes, you know something's about to happen. Here it kind of well, it doesn't work against it, but it kind of doesn't telegraph what's about to happen. Oh my goodness! Okay, <laughs> okay, I'm very excited. Okay, I was supposed to go and see that the other day, actually, or a couple of weeks ago, um, but I couldn't make it. And people were talking about it pretty much every day since. So, and I love a good horror, so I'm going to go and see that one. Do yeah, no, I do. Um, I tell you, can I just tell you what do you think has been the best movie so far for you, James? Of this year? Yeah. That's a, that's a hard question, actually. There's a couple... I was lucky enough to go to a f- uh, film festival last year in Toronto, and so there's still a couple coming out that, I, that I've already seen that I really love. One with Dame Emma Thompson called The Children Act. Yes. One with Shusha Ronan called uh, On Chisel Beach, which are both, you know, they're very sort of dramatic and in a kind of Montana Sunday theatre sort of style. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think probably three billboards would have to be one of my oh, favourites yes, in this yes, year. Yeah. Shape of Water was equally good, but in a different way. Oh, okay, because I'm going to ask you about that because there was two movies I wanted to see in the last month, and I only have limited time to watch movies. So yep. the, I I had I Tonya and I had The Shape of Water. I just wasn't drawn to The Shape of Water, so I haven't watched it yet. I did watch I Tonya. I thought that was brilliant. It was brilliant, and and it was it was such a clever way of doing a biopic like that. I mean, really using the kind of testimony against them. Yeah, no, okay, but you reckon give The Shape of Water a go? Yeah, I think so, and and equally three billboards, but for different reasons. I know, I love that movie. Yeah, Yeah. no, that was brilliant. Okay, then, well, I'll tell you what, Max is laughing at me. He's up next. Max Cryer is laughing at me with my terrible English and my structure of sentences, so we'll have a chat to him at the moment. I'm going to find out what his uh, favourite horror of all... Actually, Max, jump on this. Jump on this microphone here, Max. When was the last time... Max Cryer, when was the last time you watched a horror movie? Quite a while ago, I'm yes. afraid. Can you remember what it was? Um, was it something to do with the Munsters? Oh, my God. <laughs>
<laughs> James. Wasn't, wasn't Grandpire, was it? Grandpire? Yes. Yes, he I've says. Seen, I've seen Grandpire. Look at you, James. You know it all, don't you? You <laughs> are the lead. Kiwi movie. You are the lead of Molten of this country. I loved it. Okay, cool. So, Ocean's 8, Hereditary. Fantastic, and thanks for the tip on whether I should watch Shape of Water. Because, you know, you get these movies and they sit in your Netflix box or you, they sit in yeah. your Apple box and you think, oh, should I give it a go, should I not, should I give it a go? Uh, I'm going to take your word on it because you're the expert. It's been an absolute pleasure, James. Brilliant. Thank you, Mike. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. Oh, I enjoyed that at the movies with James Crute and his radio live with me, Mike Porter, filling in for Graham Hill. What have we got to look forward to for the rest of tonight? Well, don't forget, a little later on after 11, the Don McGlashan interview. Love the music, love Kiwi musicians, and Graham Hill interviewed Don McGlashan. So if you're thinking, where is Graham? He's away on holiday. I thought I'd still inject him into the show somehow. So the repeats of the Don McGlashan chat is coming up after 11 o'clock. Up very soon, though, Max Cryer gives us the origins of the word bogan. He gives us the origins of the word summit. And he answers many other questions. It's all on the way. It's Radio Live, the weekend variety wireless. With me, Mike, Max Cryer is next. The weekend variety wireless. On Radio Live with Mike Pudu. In for Graham Hill. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words on books, words of comfort, words of... Well, I love catching up with this man. He's one of the legends of broadcasting. I feel quite honoured just sitting across the desk from him. It's the fantastic Max Cryer. How are you, Max? I'm particularly well after hearing that intro. Oh, no, I totally mean it. Mind yep. you, I do get nervous sometimes. I was talking to James before, the movie reviewer, and every time I structure a random sentence, I'm, I look at you for affirmation. Is that the right word? Yes, it is. <laughs> Yeah, true. Thinking, did I say that right? Uh, because you are the master of language. And I think, Max, you know, we're probably teaching a whole new generation um, some language that has been forgotten over the years. Well, that's partly what happens because um, the word you want is etymology, which is what I do. Etymology is the history and structure of words now and where they came from and how they got there. And it's not really necessary that everyone has to know that. Mm. But fortunately, enough people do to write into Radio Live and say, you know, would Max explain this or that? So there, there is a, a, a lot of people, there are a lot of people who are curious well, and, you know, I guess the more we use social media and the more we shorten our sentences through text, that, that art of, you know, actually using the correct word is slowly disappearing. Well, yes, and it's actually quite a serious matter. Yes. Because the reason for language is to convey accurately what you want, what you are thinking and saying. And, of course, now if you get a message which is made up of hieroglyphics and abbreviations and full stops... And, and emojis. <laughs> and emojis, you actually don't really know what they mean. No, sometimes. you're right. And we're just going to end up with little blips eventually, aren't we? Trying to communicate to each other. Or so mute. <laughs> like, like animals will yes, start to moving or something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and thank you so much to everybody that has written uh, to Max's inbox. has been very full. We've got a lot of questions to get through a little later on. But let's start with the word of the week. Very appropriate. Summit. Summit. Well, we find out almost every week another word, yet another word in English, which is descended from Latin. Now, two of the ancient words in Latin were super, meaning over, 
and f from which we get a supervisor and the supervision. And that changed gradually to Summus, meaning the highest. And that went through French's Sobete, meaning the top. And around about the year 1400, it drifted into English as Summit, meaning the highest point, as in the highest point reached by Sir Edmund on the summit of Mount Everest. It kept on meaning that, the highest point of anything. And Sir Winston Churchill is credited with using it in a different application in 1950. He referred to an important international meeting of leaders as a parley at the summit, from then on, the word still means the highest po point of anything, be it in nature, succeeding in a profession like you, Mike, reaching your summit, has also <laughs> come to describe an international meeting of heads of state or government, usually with considerable media exposure, tight security and a prearranged agenda. OK, and that's clearly what we've seen over the last week and a half with Kim and Trump. So, summit, that word is fairly new then, isn't it? Well, no, the word is from ancient Latin, but it's such Winston Churchill who often did this. He often used colourful expressions that he sort of sort of didn't exactly make up but he had a fine reference to the English language and many of the things that have occurred over the years were because he said them right and it was he who we think in 1950 he referred to an important international meeting as a summit and everyone knew straight away what he meant it was the highest point right I think the president of America was there and the president of France and etc etc um, so now we have by the way I, I must correct you we haven't had a summit for a week and a half because we haven't actually seen or heard the summit <laughs> Nobody knows actually what was said, do they? <laughs> True. We had an hour-long press conference afterwards. <laughs> yes, with so we've had lots of lead, up-leadings and outgoings and, and opinions. So you, you are right. We didn't have a summit. We didn't. Well, we don't we know saw, what was happening. We saw the lead-up to and the aftermath of a private summit that we were not part of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and what actually did happen? Uh, know. I did watch that press conference for an hour afterwards, though, and just watched Trump basically fluff his way around, and I, I kept thinking, just be quiet, just be quiet. <laughs> Look, you've, you, you've reached a point where what has happened is probably a good thing. The, the meeting was probably a good thing, but the more he talked, the more I thought he was undoing everything that was supposed to have happened. You could be right. <laughs> shush, shush, Donald. Okay, that is brilliant. So, but Winston Churchill, what a marvel he is then. Well, he crops up several times when I'm doing this because Winston Churchill had a, a wonderful application of English language. Mm, I love that man, and there's been some brilliant movies about him too over the last 10 years, so go and watch them if you don't know anything about Winston Churchill. Okay, let's get on to our listener questions. Thank you so much. How, Max, did we get the word natter? Well, the listener considered to be considered to be a funny-sounding word. Someone recently rang him and said they'd just rung for a natter. I do that. You do that? Yes. Yeah, well, I, I find that quite an attractive word. And, I mean, he understood straight away what was going to happen. And he's just curious about how. Uh, the sound of it, it instantly conveys a mildly cheerful gossip and chat. There's no heavy discussion, no arguments, no Donald Trump, no discussing <laughs> of serious matters. It's just a natter. <laughs> no, it didn't always mean that. The word has been a new since the 1700s, but in those times it had a G, G, in front. Mm. We don't know whether it was pronounced as Gnatta. What we do know was that it was used to describe nibbling and gnawing at something. Okay, so maybe that's the nibbling and gnawing of topics? Well, not yet. Um, it just meant not taking a decent-sized bite. Oh, okay. But over years, still retained the G in front, the use of the word slowly moved away from nibbling, mm. and it changed to mean quite the opposite, 
of what it means now. It started referring to someone grumbling and being fretful and talking miserably. But a change was on the way. The G in the front of Gnetta was gradually dropped, disappeared, mm. and in the late 1800s the word seemed to have shifted its focus no one knows why, from grumbling into gossiping. Then it changed focus again, and it started being used to refer to friendly chatter at length. Not necessarily gossiping and not just a quick hello, but a longer, friendly, non-grumbling conversation. So although the word has been in use for over 200 years, in that time it's completely reversed its meaning. And if someone says, as uh, they've rung you for a natter, which is what happened to the listener, then it certainly will not be grumbling or abusive. It's just a friendly, relaxed chat. I love that, Max. And the grumbling, yes, I wouldn't want a natter to be a grumbling. A gossip, um, I wouldn't want to be a gossip because quite often when people ask me what I do for a job, I go, I just natter on the radio. <laughs> Sometimes people ask me what I had for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so natter, there you go. Thank you for that. Uh, that's, a very, that's a nice word to say too, isn't it? Natter. Yes. You know what you're saying when you say that. It's harmless. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. What's the next question? Well, you have it there. Read it. Why do you say... I... Yes, why do you say I slept like a top? Who said that in? Um, well, it, uh, I slept yeah, like a top. I gather you haven't been familiar with it. It's quite a well-used expression. Well, the, 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 the word top that I'm thinking of is probably completely different to what? It's a small wooden toy <laughs> with a string around it, and you pull the string very quickly. Oh, yes, okay, yeah, like a spinning top. That's it. Okay. Yes. Well, I slept like a top, so you maybe, I don't know, tell me. Well, it's a very, very old expression. It, it can be found in print in 1693. In ye olden times, before the invention of radio or TV or movies or cell phones or even anything that required batteries, spinning tops was a favourite playtime occupation. Mm. The British Museum has on display spinning tops from Egypt dating to 1250 BC. Now, they're old tops, well, spinning tops. Well, there were no, no television, no batteries, yes. no cell phones. Mm -hmm. but the expression is based on a very interesting fact, and it's true. When a traditionally shaped wooden top is expertly spun at the acme of its direction, it can reach such a high speed that it's quiet and appears to be steady and seems not to be moving at all. That's a good description. It's true, isn't it? That it just is so true. still where it is. Now, top spinning enthusiasts refer to this as the sleep. So, over the centuries, it became a way of describing a deep, undisturbed sleep. It's like an expertly spun top going... In the one little spot. And quite, you get quite transfixed on it when it's spinning like that, don't you? And I'm pleased that you've uh, explained that because I thought when you said I slept like a top, it meant that you were tossing and turning, you know, oh, spinning no. around in your bed. So oh, this is I why the, this is why we have this show. This is why we have the Weekend Variety Wireless. We sort things out like this. I slept like a top, a saying that some of you may be familiar with. When you hear it in its context, you think maybe they're spinning around in their bed, having a restless sleep, but it's quite the opposite. Now, the, the next question comes from something, someone who I think might be your generation. Yes, this is the question. What is or was... And I hope I say this right, a tannoy. The listener heard someone refer to a tannoy, and um, the person said it about what the listener himself would have called a loudspeaker. But tannoy is a very famous trademark, 
trade name for a very large range of loudspeakers. The firm, oh, was, okay. <laughs> the firm was founded in 1926. It's based in Scotland. It has a huge range of speakers from small domestic, social function types, full-scale professional rock concerts, and the efficiency of their speakers and the quality of their sound came from the use of a solid-state rectifier invented from the, by the company, and it's made from, wait for this, tantalum and lead alloy, hence tannoy. Nice. Now, the quality of their sound reproduction was and is much admired, and for quite a long period, including Britain and New Zealand, the firm's name, tannoy, went into common use as meaning loudspeakers or any amplifying system in a building. It became so commonly used that it's now in the Oxford English Dictionary. Tannoy refers to sound reproducing and amplifying apparatus used for public address systems. That's straight from the dictionary. That is brilliant. So, so although probably another generation like you knows the word loudspeaker and would use it, but I think the listener would have heard someone older where it was quite commonly said, we heard it over the tannoy. Right. Okay, no. Okay, cool. Because there's a very similar type of speaker that's an electronic speaker now called the Travoli, and I think that's going to morph into perhaps a word that's going to be used to describe sound. Uh, it's very Travoli. Uh, so, okay, a tannoy. Brilliant. I love it. It's Max Cryer. I love the segment. I love your feedback too. And I love filling in for Graham Hill. It's the weekend variety wireless. We'll take a break. We'll come back very soon. It is Radio Live. You're tuned in to the weekend variety wireless with Mike Puru. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace, words to make the... Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live with Mike Puru filling in for Graham Hill, who's taking a very well-deserved break. I love finding out the origins of words. And you have been filling Max's inbox with quite a few questions, so let's get straight to it, Max. What is the origin of nincompoop? Oh, I love that word. Do oh, you yeah, nincompoop. Oh, you do know what it, what it means, how it's used. Oh, yeah. I know how it's used, but I have no idea how it came about. Well, it's a, f a word to describe a foolish or stupid person, and it seems quite suitable to do that because it just sounds so silly, doesn't it? Nincompoop. Oh, I'm from Southland, so <laughs> I guess uh, we <laughs> used to use that quite a bit. Oh, you nincompoop. I don't know why. Why but, did I use that? Well, we're up against daggers drawn here, uh, read the origin, because some historians, including the famous Dr. Ben Johnson and his dictionary of 1755, said it was from Latin non-compass, as in the legal phrase non compus mentis meaning not mentally competent and everyone was fairly happy with that over a hundred years until the oxford english dictionary queried the derivation from existing latin because from the same era the 1700s other words had been found which had a similar meaning nincompoop and nincompoop so the oxford decided there was no proven connection with the latin and they were just fanciful made-up words wow another, another theory is that it's come over the channel from holland which isn't very far. Mm. People often think, you know, the continent is a long way from England, but it's not. No. Uh, the Dutch phrase nicht om poop means the female relative of a fool. Nicht om poop. Nicht om poop. Now, this, this has not had wide acceptance in English. Um, a current edition uh, of the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, has an intriguing idea of much more acceptability. It's given with some caution. They think that nincompoop may have been derived from the name of Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is from the Bible. He's the Pharisee whose attitude is considered by some to be foolish when he was in dialogue with Jesus in book John 3. 
And the French word Nicodème, meaning simpleton, is believed to be based on that assumption. Okay. It's named after Nicodemus. Nicodemus <laughs> was not very bright. So there's been a hassle over the origin of nincompoop for over 260 years. But I guess the, um, the context of it with that word foolish has been associated with that word yes. for pretty much every definition. But nincompoop also has a shade of someone not being capable. Okay. You can be foolish but bake a good pie. Mm -hmm. But if you're a nincompoop, you stumble and fall and drop it on the floor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, you put the salt in instead of the sugar. I, I, do we use it enough in, in today's language? Would you like to see it used more? Well, there's another one coming up in, in a couple of minutes, which is similar-ish. Okay, okay, but cool. First of all, we'll do the camel. Okay, cool. So how do we get the saying, and this is brilliant because I've always wondered this, the last straw broke the camel's back. We use it quite a lot, yes. probably not even realising what we're actually saying. Well, it, 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 it's based on an idea. Um, there's never been a camel which dropped dead because of the last straw being put in its back, as far as I know. But the ancient Roman version wasn't exactly the same as we say it now. Mm. The basic idea is traced back to Seneca in Rome about the year 60 AD. And this is what he wrote, quote, We do not suddenly fall on death, but advance towards it by slight degrees. We actually die every day. It's rather sad, isn't it? <laughs> now, in the following one and a half thousand years, Seneca's original philosophical statement that we just heard, it developed into the image of a living creature being given too much work to do or too great a load to carry. And it went into print in 1677. It had changed and become the last feather which breaks the horse's back. And a similar concept occurs in the Orient, not with a horse, but a camel. Okay. And in some versions it was a feather, and others had a straw, and sometimes it said the final straw. But the credit goes to Charles Dickens. It was all those loose threads that I've been talking about mm. all came together in 1648 when Charles Dickens wrote Dombey and Son, and he came out with the version which has the best rhythm. Uh, this is something that Graham always finds amusing. Something that sticks in your head and that you use with pleasure is a group of words that have rhythm. And Dickens wrote, the last straw breaks the camel's back. And that's mm -hmm. what everyone remembers. Mm -hmm. They've forgotten mm -hmm. the horse and the feathers. Yes, <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Graham's right about the rhythm, though. That's quite good, isn't it? Yes. If, yes. If a phrase has rhythm, it's, it sticks in people's mind. The last straw broke the camel's back. Yes. Oh, I like it. it. Okay, cool. Oh, I love that one. There you go. Next time you're using that, you'll know its origins now. Speaking of oranges, origins, where does the word bogan come from? Do you know it? Well, yeah, yes, it's used quite a lot still. You call Westies bogans and gore, there's bogans. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's one of those mysterious words which sometimes comes and goes and sometimes doesn't come and doesn't go. This one seems to be having some usage in recent times, as you've just proved. Or at least if you're down... Where did you say it's used? Well, uh, West Auckland. Oh, yes. Um, well, what does it gore? mean? Well, uh, well, well actually, because bogan for me, when I say it, that would basically stereotypically describe somebody who uh, likes heavy metal music, has long hair, tattoos, and likes to drink rum. Well, of course, you put your finger on it by saying, you prefaced it by saying your idea. My oh, idea of yes, it, well, yes. this is one of those things because it's very subjective. Ah, it's like okay. the word pagan, you see. If you ask three people what pagan means... And they give you different answers. answers. Well, in general terms, bogan is, as you've just said quite rightly, a contemptuous description applied to someone who's perceived as socially uncouth, 
whose fashion sense is oh. misguided. Oh. And the term is usually used in a downward direction of the socio-economic scale. Well, no, when I'm calling Westies bogans, I don't mean it like that. It's, I thought it was endearing. It is remotely possible an unkempt tramp could refer to someone on the best dress list as a bogan, but it really wouldn't work. Where does the word come from? Well, people used to tell me and they seem to think it came from the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy because in that movie 1978 there were vogans and vogans were a race of people who had officious bureaucratic and rude behavior they created the third worst poetry in the galaxy and if you transgressed their rules they punished you by reading passages of the poetry to you but there is actually no connection whatever between the Hitchhiker's Guide and Bogan. I was going to say, thankfully, I'm, <laughs> I'm pleased that there's no connection. No, there's none. The word comes from Australia, and its public use dates back to 1988. The origin is mysterious because the word exists in three different names in Australia. There's a Bogan moth, a Mount Bogan, and the Bogan River in New South Wales. That last one is thought to be a possible source because city people were inclined to refer to the area unkindly as a source of very strange uncivilised country folk. In much the same way as Aucklanders used to refer to the settlement of Poohoy became up the Buai. Ah, nice. Because it was so far out of town. Now, whether the bit about the Bogan River is true or not, the word became a pejorative for people simply whose clothes didn't please you, as just you said, at the length of their hair. <laughs> it developed connotations similar to need, dork, nerd or geek. <laughs> there are various other words which can be used in Australia like Bogan. There's Booners, Boons, Kevins and Bevins. I love Kevins. And of course Wesley's. <laughs> a term which originated in Sydney in the 1970s when the people in the eastern suburbs regarded people in the western suburbs as socially disadvantaged. But here's the good bit. Yes. The big boost for the word Bogan came in 1988. A TV character in Australia was called Kylie Mole. Yes, I remember Kylie Mole. You would have been quite young, but she's very memorable. Mm -hmm. And she performed weekly television monologues which were shown in Australia and New Zealand and were enormously popular. And she put several terms into the vernacular, such as SPAC. SPAC didn't she survive very did. And Bogan, which did survive. The actress, uh, Mary Ann Fahey, who wrote the Kylie Mole scripts and played the character on screen, said in various interviews that she caught the flavour of her monologues by listening to her 13-year-old daughter and her friends. So we can presume that the term Mogan had been around for a while before Kylie Mole made it commonplace, which she certainly did. I would never have known the word if I hadn't seen her do it. Now, she used the word Bogan to describe anyone she didn't like. Okay. Anyone she didn't approve of. <laughs> I've just offended everybody that I've called Bogan after uh, after listening to this, haven't I? I think well, it's endearing. Well, well, no, you see, because the point is that it doesn't necessarily affect the person to about whom you said it, because everyone knows that, that it's just one person's opinion, and that person is quite stupid and narrow-minded. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, well, you see, Kylie Minogue used to use the word bogan if she didn't like someone's socks. Right. She would call the whole person a bogan, a bogan. just because of the socks. So the usage still applies, which is why the word is difficult to define, but it's useful. If you call someone a bogan, bogan, everyone somehow knows you're indicating that person is to be looked down upon, at least in your opinion. And it may be possible that you mean their choice of clothes... <laughs> But nothing more precise than that. They're just a bogan. <laughs> now, let us look for a moment at June the 16th. June yes. the 16th. June the 16th. June the 16th, which is today. 
Back in 1904, the principal of Wanganui Girls College was visiting the mission schools in China and she brought home some seeds of a fruit whose Chinese name was monkey peach. Now, the seeds were planted in Wanganui in 1906 and they had their first fruit in 1910. The fruit and the plants became very popular and was widely grown by home gardeners. It, it had a distinct flavour which some people thought reminded them of gooseberries, so they acquired the name Chinese gooseberries, although they have no connection whatever with gooseberry family. Within 50 years, there were so many were growing that the firm of Turners and Growers were exporting them, but they struck a problem with what to call them. When they inquired about exporting them to America, they tried the word melonettes, but dis discovered that anything to do with melons had a very high import tariff at the American end. So did anything called berries. So eventually they made a decision on a new invented name. And 59 years ago today was the first day the original names Monkey Peach and Chinese Gooseberries were heard no more and they became Kiwi Fruit. Brilliant, Max Cryer. June the 16th, what a day the Kiwi Fruit was born. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. We will see you next time. Max Cryer there with words, and don't forget to get yours to him if you want. Easy to find us. The Weekend Variety Wireless at radiolive.co.nz, and we'll forward those emails to him. And he will work very hard, I am sure, at getting the origins correct. Max Cryer. <laughs> love that man. My goodness. i tell you a man I do love, and his name is Dave Newman. Before we go to news, I thought I'd share this with you. This is my favourite news story of the week, actually. Every now and again in life, you just come across people that have huge hearts, don't you? And when I saw this on News Hub last night, I was warmed by his generosity. He's a man that won a huge trip and where well, he decided to do something that not many of us would do. But this is beautiful. Take a listen. My favourite news story of the week from News Hub last night. A group of school children, many who have never had the chance to go to an all-black game, will be in the crowd for tomorrow night's test in Wellington. It's all thanks to one very generous rugby fan who won a competition to watch the All Blacks play anywhere in the world, but gave it away instead. Alice Wilkins reports. Front row for all the action, even testing out the field, just a taster of what's to come tomorrow night. Wearing their brand new All Blacks jerseys at today's captain's run, tomorrow these 12 school kids will be in the crowd as the team takes on France. It's all because of rugby fan Dave Newman. I can go and watch that any time. I can't go and get 12 kids and get them to come to a rugby match, and especially ones that might not have been able to go. Newman won an All Blacks 12 Days of Christmas competition at the end of last year. The grand prize, an all-expenses-paid trip for two to watch the All Blacks play anywhere in the world. Newman thought about going to Australia, maybe England, but then he had a better idea. I asked the rugby union if it was all right to change the rules maybe a little bit. And I said, well, the competition was the 12 days of Christmas. I'd like to turn it into the 12 kids from Christmas to go to the rugby. The New Zealand Rugby Union found a group of deserving and very excited school kids, many who have never had the chance to go to an All Blacks game before. Today they got to meet some of their favourite players and spend some time with the man who made it all happen. Did you enjoy the training? Yes. Hey, if you can do something like that for people, aren't we in a better world? What's happened to them over the last 
couple of hours. I don't think they'll ever forget. Dave will be sitting right beside them at the game, a night he won't ever forget either. Alice Wilkins, News Hub. Isn't that man incredible? Oh, I love him. Dave Newman, what a star. We don't often do that, do we? When was the last time you actually gave something away that you'd won? Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking long and hard. I haven't done that. I hope they enjoyed the game tonight, by the way. Uh, but it wasn't that, just so nice. I love seeing those, because you know sometimes you listen to news and it all gets a bit heavy. I love those sorts of stories. Uh, I, I've always wanted a show where I could just bring you what I find exciting. <laughs> this is the show, the Weekend Variety Wireless. That's what they call it, that plenty of variety. Hey, coming up very soon, we are going to be talking human statistics with Jonathan. Uh, that is coming up very soon. That man's from Ipsos, New Zealand, so Jonathan Dodd will be joining us soon for that. Also, a documentary that I found about housing in New Zealand back in 1946. That's on the way. And a little later tonight, just in case you're missing Graham, we've got Don McGlashan. The interview, part one and part two coming up. It's just about news time, so let's find out what went down with the rugby. Let's find out what else is going on. It's the Weekend Variety Wireless with me, Mike Pudu, filling in for the incredible... The, the just unbelievably talented Graham Hill. What big shoes to fill. By the way, if you're missing Graham, why don't you go and get yourself a podcast, just in case. But stick around, news, sport and weather is next. It's Radio Live.